Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Radical market. Solutions for a gilded age. You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? Cologne? No. Opportunity. No. Money. Okay. We smell money. Markets have given us growing inequality, a rise in populism, and decay of democracy. So we should limit the market through regulation. But what if instead of shrinking the market, we expanded it? You're suggesting that we haven't let markets go far enough? That's right. You can buy anything in this country, man. Anything you can think of. You can probably buy a left nostril inhaler if you look around long enough. With your state motto on it. Is inequality an inevitable product to the market? Our guest is Glenn Weil, co-author of Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Business as usual going on. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Big plywood up there. Business as usual. Is the market the key to freedom and prosperity? Don't markets always lead to economic inequality? Is it possible to make markets work better for everyone? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken and I teach philosophy. Our topic today, radical markets. Solutions for a new gilded age? Well, we do live in a gilded age, an age with rampant inequality, the rich getting richer, and stagnation for the rest of us. Well, so that's why we're asking the question today, is whether markets, so-called radical markets, can cure the ills of this new Gilded Age. How can markets possibly be the cure, Ken? Markets are what got us into the problem. Oh, come on. Deborah, markets are cool. Markets have given us everything from iPhones and autos to skyscrapers and airlines. Yeah, but they've also concentrated wealth in the hands of the few. And don't even get me started on some of their external effects like pollution and climate change. Ken, you're romanticizing the market. Well, you want the government to be in control? Not me, Deborah. I'll take the decentralized distributed power of free markets over the concentrated power of the command economy any day of the week. Decentralized power? What are you talking about? Economic power is highly concentrated today. But instead of being concentrated in the hands of the state, it's concentrated in the hands of a few huge multinational corporations. They're just like the robber barons of old, except they go further. They control everything, including our information. Look, Deborah, I'm going to admit that there's too much power in the hands of corporations. I'm with you there. But that's not really the fault of markets per se. Of course it is. We rely on the market way too much. No, no, we don't rely on markets nearly enough. You want to give even more power to the market? Yeah, I do. I do, because that's the only answer to the concentration of economic power that you and I both lament. We have to break up the corporations. That way we'll get more competition, less concentration of wealth, and we'll let the market operate more freely. Ken, I don't think you understand the true logic of capitalism. The true logic of capitalism? Oh, Deborah, that's so fancy. What are you talking about? The fact that capitalist competition necessarily leads to monopolies. Oh, come on. Look, capitalism is all about economic efficiency. 
And after all, monopolies can be ruthlessly efficient. Oh, come on. Monopolies mean less competition, higher prices, less choice. Now, how in the world is that efficient? Well, look. Before the Depression, there were something like 100, maybe 200 American car companies. The market decided it could produce more cars more cheaply with just the big three. No, look, 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 Deborah, you're getting me wrong. I'm not saying that the unfettered market is all that we need. We also need things like, you know, antitrust laws. I'm sure you're a fan of antitrust laws. Ah, so, Ken, now it seems you want to have your market cake and eat it, too. Well, well, if you're accusing me of wanting markets to be at least lightly regulated against the concentration of wealth, uh, yeah, I plead guilty to that. Okay, but let's take this a bit further. Let's think about labor unions. Okay. Do you object to them? No, of course not. I, didn't you know? I, I grew up in a labor household. I love labor unions. Okay, but labor unions are a form of monopoly, a form of monopoly that helps restrain concentrated corporate power. Yeah, get, so monopoly is not always the problem. Yeah, I get what you're trying to do to me. You're trying to do this Socratic thing. You're trying to get me to make more and more concessions to the importance of non-market forces. And then presto changers, you're going to get me on the side of the state or something. But no, no, no. I'm not going to go there. And let's not lose sight of the fundamental point. Uh, what is that? It's at bottom. Look, you got two choices, Deborah. Either the market's going to allocate things or the government's going to do it. And given the choice between the two, I'll take the market over the government almost any day of the week. Look, governments can focus on fairness, justice, and the common good. Markets don't care about that. That's <laughs> not their business. Haven't you read your Adam Smith where you don't like the invisible hand and all that jazz? You know, the invisible hand is sometimes an iron fist, Ken. Think about how automation has displaced unskilled labor and decimated whole communities. Look at the gig economy. Oh, what do you have against the gig economy? The gig economy is cool. It lets everyone work as much as they want, whenever they want. I, I call that freedom. You got something against freedom? Atomized workers struggling to make a living wage isn't freedom. Look, Deborah. I'm going to admit there's lots to think about here, and I'm going to grant there aren't any obvious answers. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to explore the surprisingly radical origins of the free market. She files this report. What if I told you free markets used to be a cause of the left? Free market thinking begins in the 17th century. This is Elizabeth Anderson with the University of Michigan, and we're using the classical definition of the left as egalitarian and the right as authoritarian. They were objecting to domination by the rich who were backed up by the state. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. How'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. You already have explorers going off, colonies are being established, and really big money can be made on international trade. But there was no pretense of free markets at this time. The aristocrats controlled the state and the economy. It's good to be the king. They were one team. The state would award a monopoly in candle making to one manufacturer and a monopoly in trade in wool to another. Really, the state rigged the rules of property in favor of really rich people. So dissenters began to emerge, and they were coming from this egalitarian, democratic, liberal way of thinking. I will bring the law within the reach of every common man. This nation will prosper. 
the small manufacturers wanted in on those opportunities and not have them just monopolized by favorites of the state. Their idea was free markets let us be our own bosses and we can run our businesses the way we please. In other words, free markets make us free, free to be self-employed. Because the rigged markets, they don't just lock regular workers out of the action. It means that in order to support themselves, they'd have to work for the aristocrats. The vast majority of workers would have a boss and the bulk of revenues would go to their employer with them only earning a wage. These free marketeers, they weren't just articulating their own self-interest, they developed an entire ideology. They argued that, yes, these big monopolies do benefit from economies of scale, but self-employed workers will always be better because they have the incentive of getting to keep what they earn. This is Adam Smith, Tom Paine, and all the way up to Abraham Lincoln. But what these guys didn't predict is how dramatically the world was about to change. Quick sorting, get back to work. Attention, foreman. Double on bench five. Check on the nut pipers. Nuts coming through loose on bench five. Attention, foreman. The Industrial Revolution, and especially the Machine Age, wiped out self-employed enterprises. And so we get a fundamental change of reality in the 19th century. So today, when people extol free markets, they may still mean no state-enforced monopolies, level the playing field. But the rhetoric is also used to oppose a bunch of things that weren't in play when free marketeers got started. Things like regulations, organized labor, and taxing business. This old rhetoric that markets will make you free, which seemed pretty plausible before the Industrial Revolution, conservatives just continued to utter the same words, forgetting that the original premise of that argument was that it would make them free of their bosses. Elizabeth Anderson argues that the freedom on offer by contemporary free marketeers now has nothing to do with work. It's about freedom as a consumer. Because of Obamacare, I am now stuck with a plan that doesn't work for me. My choice was taken away from me. School choice is a way governments can give parents back their education tax dollars to choose whatever educational options they think best fit their kids. But today's focus on consumers ignores the realities that people have at work. It's very rare for conservative rhetoric to even consider the abuses workers face at work. And when they do, the standard argument that they give is, if you don't like it, you're free to quit. That's a pretty limited definition of freedom. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal. To hear the rest of this program, head to philosophytalk.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.